Before we get started, in this podcast, we discuss suicide and postpartum depression. If you're struggling or having suicidal thoughts or worried about someone you know, please call 000 or Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit ruok.org.au. If you or someone you know needs support for postpartum depression, visit panda.org.au. People feel like if you do mindfulness and meditation, you lose your edge. But the opposite is true. You know, like when I look at all the science and at university and at research, we actually need tools in our toolkit to recharge our brain. We also need to make sure that our mental health is thriving. And to have a really full life, which is kind of what we all deserve, right? Everyone listening to this, you want to be fulfilled and you want to be happy and you want to live on purpose because life is short. Life is temporal and you have no idea what's around the corner. So while we're here, we should be having a really, really good time. From Women's Health Australia, this is Uninterrupted, a podcast where we share honest and inspiring conversations so you can live a healthier, more empowered life. I'm Editor-in-Chief Lisa Gebilagin. Chelsea Pottinger is a motivational speaker and accredited mindfulness and meditation coach. She has a new book out now called The Mindful High Performer, and as the founder of EQ Minds, has worked with many of the world's leading brands like eBay, Google, Telstra, CBA, and Macquarie Bank, to name a few, to help improve team well-being. Look, I've got to be totally honest with you. This chat goes deep. And it took a lot for me not to cry while I was talking to Chelsea and listening to her story about her breaking point. At the same time, she shares so much of what she's learnt while building herself back up that I felt so empowered by the end of our chat. I hope you do too. Chelsea, you open your book with such an impact, talking about how as a self-proclaimed high performer, you found yourself suicidal, addicted to sleeping pills and in a mental institute. Can you tell us about that point in time and the events that led up to Yeah, it's pretty wild, isn't it? Like what an intense start to that book. And and that's why I wanted to make sure that I was really honest and open with everyone, that it wasn't just the LinkedIn version that people see of your life. And things that led up to that point was that, you know, with postnatal depression and suffering severe postnatal depression after the birth of Clara, there's other things going on before that that I probably didn't give enough emphasis to before having Clara. So before, you know, Clara came along and she's just the most beautiful bundle of joy. I was living a very fast paced life in Sydney. You know, 12 hour days was kind of my thing, rise and grind, alcohol to take the edge off at night, socializing at nighttime, in the morning, you know, hitting up the coffee, going for a run, doing triathlon training, doing another 12 hour day. And then the weekends were spent really hard socializing. So it was like this real work hard, play hard, party hard, like lifestyle. Yeah, just on all the time in all facets of your life. On all the time. Like I'd even run to yoga, right, to quickly decompress and then I'd run home. I wouldn't even stay for Shavasana. You didn't even stay for Shavasana. That's the best part. (laughs) I know now. I was just living this hamster wheel pace. Then I had a couple of um, traumas to my head actually. So two things that happened, I got knocked out at the ski fields by a border uh, and I got knocked out and had a something called a vasovagal, which if you don't know what they are, it looks quite similar to a seizure. So you're just kind of convulsing. What your body is doing is trying to get blood to your brain and 
going to be pretty scary for people watching that. So that happened to me at the ski fields in 2014, I think it was. And then fast forward, you know, another year or so, and I was running down the stairs at our apartment carrying the rubbish and slipped over and hit the back of my head. Oh, God. Then had another vasovagal, right? So my, my brother and husband come running out call an ambulance. And, I'm, and I woke up, I came to, and I'd kind of just like rustled down the stairs of the rubbish. So it was, it was really attractive to find me down the stairs, at least rubbish around me. Also, can we emphasize that you were also running to put the rubbish out? <laughs> right. Cause I had places to be right. I mean, just what a wild pace. And so I ended up in hospital and, and then I started having these anxiety panic attacks after that, you know, they didn't find anything on the investigation when they did, you know, the sleep deprived brain scans and EEGs and things like that. But something definitely was amiss with my mental health after that. And I really do believe that that trauma was kind of what sparked up the very reactive amygdala. So I had, you know, these sort of panic attack episodes when I was driving underneath the Harbour Tunnel Bridge and you know, where I'd have to like pull the car over into the emergency lane and like jump in the back of my car, having a panic attack. It was so scary. I don't know if any of the audience listening have ever had a panic attack, but it is frightening when you're going through stuff like that, particularly when you're not knowing what's going on with your mind. And uh, I remember the security came down because I thought it was a terrorist attack. All they saw was this SUV pulled across into the tunnel and the driver missing. They come down and and I was just in the back and they're like, are you okay, ma'am? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm just trying to breathe. I'm okay. <laughs> and um, they drove me out and I was really upset because I didn't know what was going on. And and then I, I went and saw a psychologist after that to, to really help me get through um, those kinds of things. But fast forward to falling pregnant with Clara, I was so excited when that happened because it took us years to fall pregnant with her that I didn't even think about talking to anyone about my previous mental illness, you know, with anxiety. I was just so excited. I didn't even know what perinatal anxiety and depression was. I had no idea. So along comes, you know, Clara and uh, and I was just so elated, to be honest, Lisa, in those first few days. I'm like, this is the best thing ever. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. It's taken us years to have her. And then day three is like clockwork, like this switch went across. Like, it's like my gene expression switched on and boom came this horrendous demons into my mind and I didn't tell anyone you know like I was having these premonitions about jumping off the balcony and uh, these really wild thinking patterns and then I'm like don't say anything they might take Clara away from you so let's just pretend we've all got it going on and, and everything's fine and then it just escalated from there and because I wasn't aware of what postnatal depression was I didn't know anyone that had gone through it I'm like, what is going on with side my brain? And then I just got more sad. You know, every day I started to cry. Every day I had insomnia. Like my insomnia got worse. I was so anxious. I couldn't recognize my own daughter. Like, you know, I'd be holding her in my arms and people were like, oh, she's so beautiful. She looks just like you and Jay. And I'm like, she's like a stranger to me. But I didn't say that, right, to anyone. I was just kind of masking all that. And then, uh, and then it just kept getting worse and I started getting uh, more anxious, started to slip into some depression and then at nine, when Clara was uh, nine weeks old, I was meant to go to Scotland for my best mates. One of my best mates was getting married and I was her bridesmaid. So, again, you know, I'm still pretending to everyone I had it going on and, and then on the inside I was just crumbling like a hot mess 
And I thought if I can just get to Scotland and escape this nightmare and get myself better, I can come back and be the mum that I'm meant to be. And and so I try to get to the plane and uh, and I have this massive panic attack again. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't even get to Scotland. I'm not going to be able to recover. And there's this full sense of helplessness set in. And that turned to a very, very dark space, Lisa. Like I pulled the car over and I'm like, man, I'm just such a burden. I can't, I'm not a good mom. I can't get to Scotland to be a good friend. I'm a terrible wife. Why am I even here on this planet? I think the world would be better off without me not here. And I started, you know, Googling ways to end my life. And, you know, reflecting back on that, that is that is so sad, you know, that I got to that headspace. And, and I was very very dangerous and very real. And I I came home to write a letter to my husband and and daughter because at that stage I'd made that decision being type A and being very action orientated. I'm like, right, I now know what to do. This is the only way out of this um, sheer um, darkness. The only way out was to remove myself from the globe. And uh, so I went home to write the letter to Clara and Jay to explain to them what was what I was, you know, that I loved them and that they would be better off without me and they'd thank me one day, you know. They wouldn't realise at the time, but they'd be so grateful that I wasn't here anymore. That's, that's how much I'd convinced my mind. Yeah. And it's just, you know, I just I feel so sad and so, and for suicidal ideation patients because it feels so real for them at the time. Anyway, my husband was home, right, when I got home and getting into the house, he wasn't meant to be there. And he's, he's like, darling, what's going on? You know, what are you doing here? You're meant to be on a plane. And I just burst into tears, Lisa, and I said, you know what, sweetheart, I'm I'm actually not coping. I haven't told you this before, but I'm really, darling, I'm in a really dark place. I've come home to write a letter to you and Clara. I was on the way, you know, to go and end my life. And I just think that you, you'll be better off without me, not here. And I know it's probably hard for you to hear this, but I promise you, you're going to be happy once I'm gone. And he's just looked at me and he's like, darling, what are you talking about? We love, and he just burst into tears and was like, we love you. We need you in this life. You are really unwell. Let's get you, let's get you help immediately. Let's call your cousin who's a psychiatrist. I don't understand what's going on, but I know that we can help you. We'll get you into hospital. And, and he really saved my life, to be honest. He, he took immediate action in a place where I didn't know what to do. For the rest of my life, Lisa, I, I've got this guy's back. You know, no matter whatever happens, you know, all the way up to 95, I've, you know, I will take care of that man because he was there for me in that, that darkest of time. Yeah. So that is kind of what led up <laughs> to that point of severe postnatal depression. And and to be honest, you know, being admitted into that St. John of God, Mums and Bubs, you know, if there's anyone listening who is really at that point of despair, that hospital is incredible. And uh, if you feel like you're not safe, you know, give them a call. And I had to go there for five weeks with our daughter, Clara, to recover. And it was the best place I could have been because in a very unfamiliar setting in terms of having severe mental illness like that, you feel relatively normal, right, in a very crazy time of your life because you get into a hospital and there's 12 other mums in there with their babies and they're telling you their stories and you relate on this really bizarre realm of knowing that you're not alone anymore. And the people in that hospital, they were very high-functioning people. You know, there was a lawyer in there with me. There was a surgeon. There was a property developer. There was, you know, a beautiful mum from Dubbo that worked at Coles. She was in there. And all these people from different walks of life, and you come together as a little tribe to help each other heal. And it's incredible. 
what you said there about knowing that you're not alone. I think this is why we're also grateful and so lucky now that women are being more open about their experiences with postnatal depression. And it's amazing that you are sharing your story as well and in so much detail too, so that other women who may be in the same situation can recognize it too and realize, you know what, there's actually, there's help out there. There are other women who've done, who, who have experienced the same thing. Absolutely. And I think that is so, so important. I remember when I was in hospital, someone gave me Jessica Rose's book, Is This My Beautiful Life? And that was such a light source for me. You know, I, I was reading her book going, wow, if someone like Jessica Rowe can go through postnatal and, and recover, maybe I can too. And that's what I was thinking about my book. You know, if this reaches one parent out there that's going through a really tough time and they read the start of that first chapter and go, wow, she's been where I've been or where I am now, there's hope, right? I'm not alone. Mm. And I think it's so, so important as human beings that we, it's, it's that authentic piece, isn't it? That vulnerability of going, hey, you're not alone on this journey, you know, and it's okay sometimes to not be okay. And there's strength in knowing that people have been in the trench with you and that they do get better. Your opening of the book was not how I expected your book to open with a title like The Mindful High Performer. I seriously thought it was just going to be more so about the career aspect of of life. Yeah. Yeah. And then even when you start with talking about, you know, about your life before where it was like always on the go, working all those long hours, running to the gym, running to do social things, drinking, etc. That's what it that's what I thought it was going to be about. What made you decide to write this book where it's still about say performance and then also about your experience with postnatal depression rather than just writing a book on postnatal depression? Mm, That's a great question. And I think, you know, what I've learned from my story and from my experience now, because after recovering from hospital, I went back to university to study psychology and became a mindfulness and meditation coach. And and I still, you know, Lisa, to be honest, drink a glass of Shiraz on a Friday. (laughs) (laughs) No one's going to judge you for that. And I still have a piccolo in the morning. (laughs) And I think that to be, and this is why I really love the title, The Mindful High Performer, because people feel like if you do mindfulness and meditation, you lose your edge. But the opposite is true. You know, like when I look at all the science and at university and at research, we actually need tools in our toolkit to recharge our brain. We also need to make sure that our mental health is thriving. You know, the statistics are pretty scary to me out there around how many people are actually suffering a mental illness. And so they could be turning up at work as a shell of a human being and their mind is elsewhere. And to have a really full life, which is kind of what we all deserve, right? Everyone listening to this, you want to be fulfilled and you want to be happy and you want to live on purpose because life is short, life is temporal and you have no idea what's around the corner. So while we're here, we should be having a really, really good time. And to normalize a big part of signing that book deal with Murdoch was to normalize the conversation. When ending up in hospital, the last place I ever wanted for anyone to be is to end up where I did. 
And so one, it's destigmatizing a mental illness. It's a real thing. It's just as important we look after our brain as much as what we do with our body. You know, taking the body to the gym, we also need to take our brain to the gym. And also that sometimes, you know, we still need more, right? We've got these amazing tools in the toolkit. You've got your sleep, your gut health's going on, your morning rituals are vibing. You've got great social connections. You've got it all happening and sometimes we still need more, right? And I think and in the last chapter, Lisa, we speak about your toolkit and I'm very open in that chapter as well around medication because that's another huge stigma I feel like we have across our nation around shame and guilt for taking a mental illness medication, whether it's for anxiety, whether it's for depression, whether it's for post-traumatic stress disorder, whether it's for bipolar. And I feel like, you know, we don't shame people for taking any other medication and some people just need more, right? They could be doing everything possible, but their body just does not manufacture enough serotonin. And then that's when that conversation definitely needs to be had with the doctor, psychiatrist and psychologist to make sure whatever they're going to supplement, right, your lifestyle with, it agrees with you because not everyone's going to, I take a particular medication called Zoloft and it's amazing for me. I'm very high functioning on it. It gives me a great memory. It helps me sleep really well. It also helps me do all these other tools that I do in the toolkit because we can't just lean on one thing. Mm -hmm. And so... I wanted the book to be able to, you know, we see 10,000 people probably a week in our keynote events and workshops across the globe with our corporate brands we train. But one thing that I really felt was how about that poor mum out at Dubbo that I met in the hospital that doesn't work for Google or doesn't work for Atlassian or doesn't work for the Macquarie Bank who we train? What happens to them? They can't get access to these tools because they're not working for these big corporates. Imagine if we could give them a book that has the tools in it that we train hundreds of thousands of people in every year and maybe just one tool helps that woman or that man or it helps that parent or it helps their child. And I think what a beautiful globe that would be if we're just helping each other, you know, one one tool, one person at a time. And so that was really the intent, Lisa, for the book was it doesn't need to be the most bought book. I just want it to be one of the most read books where it's just helping people across our nation and the globe to feel better and improve their mental health as well as their performance. What you said too about having a full life and making sure that you have, because like you said, life is temporal. We, we're not here forever and many of us like to make the most of our lives. But I think I guess the difference is what most people think about making the most out out of their lives is that go, go, go mindset versus what you're teaching in this book. Can you explain the difference about how you approach life differently, but still get the most out of it? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, you know, I still operate just at that beast mode, right? (laughs) Everything was on a to-do list and I didn't have space to meditate, right? I didn't see the, back then I didn't see the clinical benefits of doing something like that. I didn't know about it, so I used a different stress strategy like booze um, to take the edge off the stress at night. And I feel like, you know, to be honest, I probably do more now than what I did in my corporate job in terms of the output. Um, That's with studying and running a company at EQ Minds and being a mum and being a really good friend to my connections. But my goodness, I live in such a better headspace in terms of 
I'm a lot more productive these days because I, I've got all this training and tools around me. So it's not about having to do 10K runs and 40 minutes of meditation every day. In the book, it's really actionable, bite-sized tips and tools that help people actually change the way that they, and it's just these small behavioral changes, right? Like maybe it's just when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is not look at your phone and you practice gratitude. And we talk about the neuroscience research behind that because so many people do this right across the globe. Mm. And that's a really actionable thing that people can do is because as you can imagine, right, you wake up, we turn the alarm clock sound over and or off. And as soon as we do that, by the way, uh, for the people who are listening, if your alarm clock sounds like this, beep, beep, that kind of sound, I really encourage you while I listen to this podcast to get on your alarm clock sounds and change it straight across to something like bird sounds or the harp or timber African drums or a nice song because what's going on there is your brain's getting ripped out of a delta brainwave into, you know, a beta brainwave of high stress and your brain's really vulnerable when you first wake up. So I think people don't realise that, that because the brain's really neuroplastic when you wake and neuroplasticity is just a fancy word in the scientific literature for Play-Doh. So the brain's like Play-Doh, right, when you're waking up, so it's very vulnerable to what you're looking at off your phone. If you think about that, right, and you're looking at a murder on the news feed or you're looking at social media or you're looking at and maybe someone's got a different political view to you or you're looking at, um, I don't know, the weather, right, and you see thunderstorms forecasted, it's having a direct impact on the structure of your brain because you're taking that content in through your eyes, it's stimulating your amygdala, so you're getting this huge cortisol pulse, so you're getting a big stress pulse first up, then you get a huge adrenaline surge because your adrenal glands will get uh, reactive. And then what I think is really interesting is that your synaptic connections in your brain will start to change and start to fire. So depending on what you're looking at first up in the morning, if you're looking at things that are stressful, your brain's going to start to hardwire and fire up new connections in your brain for things like fear and worry and stress and paranoia. We haven't even thrown our leg outside the bed yet, right? We're just in there scrolling away. So one of those easy hacks that I say to people that help you become like this mindful high performer is instead of looking at your phone for the first eight to 10 minutes in the morning, I really encourage you to not look at it when your brain's vulnerable. I ask people to own their first eight to 10, right? I just want you to own it. Don't let the world come in and dictate how you should start your day and wake up and instead lay in bed and think about a few things you're grateful for. And in, and this isn't about, you know, Lisa, about the whole toxic positivity that we see across social media around good vibes only and mm-hmm. that doesn't exist, right? And I think no. it's important that we feel all emotions. But this is about the beautiful thing about being a human being is in the morning you get a fresh slate, right? Every 24 hours you get to start fresh with your brain. So feed it the good stuff. If you do gratitude first up in the morning instead of looking at your phone, you're going to get a serotonin release, which is your happy chemical. And people feel that. They're going to feel that if they start doing this for the next few days, wake up, not look at your phone, lay in bed. I'm grateful for my pillows. I'm grateful for the fur baby at the end of my bed. I'm grateful. (laughs) They will actually start to feel their lens of this world start to shift and change. And it's, it's easy things like that that I feel... To be a high performer, you need to have these moments in your life where you are mindful and in the moment because it also helps structure your brain into a more focused powerhouse. And that's what we want, right? We want to get more engine sort of source out of our brain. We want more glucose to be fired up there. So we are higher performers, uh, but also enjoying the process 
like enjoying the ride. Well, eight to 10 minutes when you first wake up in the morning isn't a massive commitment. I feel like it's doable, you know. (laughs) I've heard other people talk about morning routines and they're like, make sure the first hour is for yourself, which is amazing if you can do it. Um, But eight to 10 minutes, I feel like is a small enough goal that you'll be like, yeah, I can try that. Yeah. Like it's not, and this is the big thing, isn't it? Like imagine if I came into these keynote events and seeing a couple of thousand people going, okay, everyone, no coffee, no alcohol. Let's run for 10 Ks a day. Let's meditate for an hour. I would get booed off the stage. (laughs) (laughs) I would boo myself off. I'm like, you are boring. Get off the stage because you want to kind of, for me, I always say this, I want to kind of live to 95 and, and skid into my coffin with a glass of maybe Bollinger in my hand going, well, that was fun. Yeah. That was the, the deck of cards I got handed. That was a fun ride for me because I made those decisions and those choices. And so I feel like you want to be, you want these things to be attainable for the for the whole of the public to be able to do. And not checking your phone is probably the biggest game changer you could possibly do just for the first few minutes of the morning and then of course you know check it as you get going but it's like if you can just honor that and just own your first eight like I don't know about your audience but for me like I don't know anyone in my life that wakes up and and sees a a murder on the news feed and then does like a fist pump and jumps out of bed going yes (laughs) a great day after seeing that yeah no one does that and if you are laying if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my gosh, my partner does that. I would say run for the hills. Okay. You're probably, <laughs> you're probably dating a sociopath. No one does that. All right. We're taking this drama in like bad food and it's completely impacting our mental health first up in the morning. So, I mean, if that's the one tool out of a thousand you get out of that book, let it be that. <laughs> Just <laughs> Now other tools, like we, so we spoke about medication, are there any other smaller tools that you think that our, anyone listening right now could action in the next week or so? Absolutely. So let, let's do the morning because I think that's a really important one. And again, just choose from the book or choose from this little list one or two things that you feel like you can do. I don't want you to be listening to this feeling completely overwhelmed. You're like, oh, okay, Oprah, that's a lot to get done, right? <laughs> it's just you choosing something you're going to enjoy to do. And, and in that book as well, we do everything science-based. And so you, it's all about opportunity cost in your life. Like choose something that you're going to enjoy to do. Choose something that's sort of robust in science so you know it's having a good clinical benefit on your brain and your body. And then do that, right? Don't have to do everything um, because we don't want you to feel anxious about your well-being. So my morning routine, I've, I've kind of change this right over the last six years when I see things emerging at research in the in, you know at university something will change because I'm like wow that's amazing I'm now going to do that and something else will have to shift off my morning routine so some really easy things that I do when I first wake up are things like don't look at my phone right I wake up I think about a few things that I'm grateful for I do this also with our daughter Clara so if, you've, if there's parents or auntie and uncles who are listening I really encourage you that you teach these tools to our younger generation. Uh, So then I wake up, right, do that. No phone, gratitude. I make my bed. There's so much cool stuff around why making your bed is important. Uh, Then I brush my teeth with the opposite hand. I know that sounds super random, but there's really good research around brushing your teeth with the opposite hand where dexterity sits in your brain. So finger movement will get a little bit of a workout. So it's a beautiful anti-aging technique for the brain. Plus, it's a real mindful exercise because 
I can promise you right now, if you're not paying attention and you're brushing your teeth in the opposite hand, you're going to make a super hot mess of like your toothpaste and everything. (laughs) So, My God, yeah, you're forced to be in the moment with that. Right, Mm. you are forced because your mind is a bit like a puppy in terms of if you give it the chance, like when you're having a shower, say you're chopping carrots, you're driving the car, all these moments in time where you've got this idle time, your brain, if you're in tune to it, it's going to sweep back into the past or project forward into the future. That's kind of what it does. And where real peace and contentment lies is here in the present moment. And so the more that you can train your brain that way, you'll notice, right? So right now while I'm talking to you, Lisa, I'm right here with you. I'm not thinking about the workshop I've gone on at 12 o'clock. I'm not thinking about, you know, like I'm, I'm here. And so people notice this, you know, when you're engaging with them in conversation, you're going to notice it with your work and your focus, so brushing teeth the opposite hand, that's a cool thing to try. Then thing, really simple things, right, in these morning routines like hydration, you know, where we sweat when we sleep, not just me, okay, so don't throw stones at me, everyone. <laughs> you sweat too. We all sweat as human beings in that attractive. So we sweat at night. Uh, we also dehydrate, right? So we wake up, we're, we're really dehydrated. So before we, we do smash that first coffee, just have a big glass of water. Uh, then I take a greens, right? I, I'm massive into gut health and mental health. And I've got a whole chapter dedicated to that in the book. We can't deny that anymore. Our gut is completely linked to our mental health. Mm-hmm. So I take a probiotic and prebiotic supplement in the morning, which is just pretty much 72 plants compressed into a powder. That's it. So I take that. So I know that my gut health is getting a really good hit of greens. Then I kind of exercise. And because our daughter is now seven, She will ride the bikes with us. You know, when she was little, she'd sit on the back of the bicycle. We'll take her for a surf. She'll come to the gym. She's, you know, little ones are always observing what we do. So we make sure that she's a part of that exercise regime in the morning. Then we'll come back. I have a hot shower followed by a cold water shot at the end, only 30 seconds. I'm not some kind of like go hard, crazy seven-minute ice bath person, again, because the research shows me it's just 30 seconds of cold at the end of the hot shower is amazing for people who suffer depression like myself. It's really incredible for, for us who are vulnerable to a mental illness. So it's a, it's a really good thing for our immune system. So it decreases absenteeism and things like that from work and school. Uh, and it's a really good thing for focus because you get a huge um, surge of nice blood to, to the brain. And so I do that. So 30 seconds cold at the end. And then I uh, sit down and I do my to-do list and I think about two things. One, what's the biggest return on investment for my company? So I don't check emails at the start. I'm literally sitting down going, okay, I'm working on the biggest sort of most important task first for EQ Minds globally. And then two, I think about where am I going to schedule in my mental health and physical health for the day and I lock it in like a calendar entry, like what I would when I'm doing a workshop, a podcast interview, a um, client meeting things like that. And so in that schedule, you'll see my calendar, a 10 minute meditation at 2 PM. And my team know they can't book me in for a meeting. They can't book me in for a workshop. It's like a appointment with a, with a CEO. And I need to lock those things in. And and actually we all kind of need to do that because Mm. otherwise we get swept up, right? Don't we? We get swept up to the busyness of the day and we don't get it done. You know, if it's not down in the calendar, we just don't do it. That's like a a little morning routine that I do. And some mornings it doesn't always work that way. You know, if Clara's unwell, like she is this morning, the the morning routine kind of got thrown out, right? We didn't get time to do a few of those things and that's okay. 
so if you've got some things in the morning that you're doing, so you're starting your day off on a really good way, then that's awesome. And I guess too, when, when the day doesn't necessarily turn out the way that you would usually have it, you've got this bank of all these other days where it has. So mm. that kind of sets that foundation for you. Absolutely. And if you make your bed in the morning and you have a crap day, at least you come home to a, to a bed. That's- <laughs> <laughs> um, also, I like this idea of even setting a, an appointment in your calendar for a 10-minute meditation because I find that right with running women's health and then also having a very young daughter who's almost a year and a half Mm. I've tried tried to meditate in the evenings but you know there's like all the bed routines with her um then cooking dinner etc by the time I get into bed I'm like oh god I don't have to do another thing it just feels like another thing on my to-do list yeah whereas doing something like this where it's just 10 minutes during the day that I can block out Again, that's something that I'm like, yes, I can do that. Absolutely. And, and I always help you with meditation. And we've got, a, a again, another chapter in the book around mindfulness and, and meditation. And the, the science around meditation blows my mind. Like it's, it's actually so incredibly sound now in terms of what meditation does for our brain. And I think for people it's finding their intrinsic motivation and then also scheduling in when you can get it done. It's not like there's no perfect time to do it, right? Like it's for me, I'm doing it in the back of the Uber. I'm like, buddy, can you not chat to me for a moment? I'm just going to block in here for meditation. I put my, you know, those headsets on. I get massaged. I hate people chatting to me when I'm having a massage. I have a weekly massage. My Thai lady comes over on Sunday. She's amazing, sunny. She massages me, my husband and our daughter every Sunday. She knows. Right? I just block in for a meditation for an hour. When I walk, I go walking. I might do a 10-minute walking meditation then. Uh, so I always say to people, you know, even when you fly, 10 minutes when you take off, you can't do anything. Like you can't get your computer. You can't get to, you can't, you know, do a 10-minute meditation then. Um, it's just, and knowing that it's 10 minutes a day for neurological changes for the brain, that is really attainable. You know, when I first learned it, it was 20 minutes twice a day. And that is intense. That is 40 minutes out of my very time compressed schedule. I can't get that done, you know, but I can do 10 minutes. And the way that I feel after that is incredible, like for the next 24 hours after a 10-minute session. So, but again, you know, Lisa, meditation is not going to be for everyone, right? Like that's what I say to people in that book, there is so many tools and I just want to arm you with a toolkit that's really unique for people out there that they can lean on. They're going to find fun to do. Now, I'm really curious, how do you think Chelsea in her 20s would have responded to you telling her all this now? Oh, she would have told me to piss off. (laughs) (laughs) So how would you have convinced her back then? Uh, No, you know what? To be honest, when I was a young, even when I was young, I've always had a very curious mind. I've been a huge avid reader and I've been huge about self-development. So I'm pretty sure I would have been open to that. It's just that no one explained it to me when I was 20. You know, I never had anyone come into my corporate job and talk to me about different healthier coping strategies. So I didn't, ignorance is kind of, you know, we just don't know what we don't know. And so, you know, I think some things about, you know, a younger Chelsea and and some, maybe some advice, you know, I would have given a younger version of myself is one, you will face adversity in this life and just know that it's in those challenges that's where you're going to grow the most. And it's okay 
to hit the pavement and it's going to be okay to have tough times and you will get through that. So I think that's one thing that I think telling our future generation is important, right? It's not, we can't modicoddle our, our children. They have to actually fall over because that's what builds the grit up for them. And um, so that would be one piece of advice. And two, I would definitely talk to her about her tribe And my mum gave me this advice, actually, which my mum is like the most amazing, sage, sort of wise counsel. And she said to me when I was like 19, um, she gave me my phone. And um, that's the first time I got a phone, right, 19. Can you imagine? So the Nokia 5210s, like these big bricks. She said, darling, every September, I want you to spring clean your wardrobe. So have a really condensed like capsule wardrobe. So have very high quality items that you can afford, the highest quality and less of, and two, sprinkling your phone. Anyone that is bitchy or toxic or you walk away from them and you feel like there's knives in your back, delete their number. And I'm like, wow, that's really ruthless, mum. And she's like, yeah, sweetheart, but it's going to be vital for your well-being. Oh, that's such good advice from back then. Awesome. And now, you know, at university we hear about Nicholas Christakis's work around emotion contagions are real, the people we spend time with, it really shapes the person that we end up being. And so I think that's really super cool advice. And um, that's something that I'd reiterate to a younger Chelsea as well. And these are all beautiful things that I get to teach our daughter Clara as well on this journey, because, you know, even at age seven, you already see a few little bullies emerging in the schoolyard. And I always say to her, darling, the most beautiful thing about being a human being is that you get to choose the people that you spend time with. Only choose people that lift you up and make you feel good and always be kind in this life. It is cool to be kind. And she's she's a sweetheart. Like her manners are beautiful. She's a sweetheart. She loves nature. And she's aware of this now. And she does. She just she just surrounds herself with now with really good, good human beings. So that's lovely. It breathes hope into my heart as a parent that uh that I'm arming this kid with some pretty some pretty valuable tools to get her through the toughest of times that she will face as well. Absolutely. And then also arming our audience. Like I feel like you're a part of our tribe by being a part of this conversation right now. This is great. Oh, thanks, Lisa. I just think wouldn't that just be amazing, like it impacts one person? Like what a cool book that would be if someone just learned something from that and they're like this is going to really help either me or my child or my niece or my nephew. Now, one last thing I want to chat about before you need to go is before we started recording the conversation, we were talking about sleep and the importance of sleep and how you sleep in a separate room from your husband. I know. It's the best. (laughs) (laughs) Now, please enlighten our listeners um, of why you you both decided to do that and how it works for you guys. You're not so funny, Lisa. So many of my audience will message me going, you sleep in a separate room from that man. Like my husband is so physically gorgeous. Like people cannot comprehend that I would want to sleep in a separate room from him. And I'm like, yes, I do. Uh, Um, so sleep is really important for my mental health. It's actually one of my triggers. So if I don't get a couple of nights of good sleep, my mental health starts to go. And so I'm very aware of that. And so I really need good rest. And my husband knows that too. And so ever since Clara's been born, we've been sleeping in separate rooms. Now he, Jay is like six foot four, six foot five. He's really tall. 
and I'm about 5'11", right? So that's a lot of human being in our king-size bed. He snores a little bit, to be honest, and uh, I fidget a lot. And so we just get a lot better sleep, right, in separate rooms. And so a big thing of this, you know, we're very intimate. We have a beautiful, loving marriage. But at the end of the night, you know, we're just sleeping next to each other, right? So I'm like, you know what, buddy, go to another room. And, you know, when you've been together for so long, like we've been together for for years, like 22 years or something, you kind of, you know, you're like, you know what, mate, I'm okay not seeing your face for eight hours. And it's, <laughs> I just think you speak to each other so much nicer in the next day once you both have had really good sleep. And this is going to be for the individual. Yeah. Not everyone, people be like, Chelsea, but I love the skin on skin contact and that's okay. You know, that's beautiful that you love that. Stay in the same room as your partner, right? Like, but if you're like, oh, he's on a CPAP machine or, you know, gosh, he's up and down, going to the toilet all the time. He goes to bed really late. I go to bed really early. He like wakes up at two and turns the, turns the lamp on to read a book. I would say have the conversation, right, with your partner. You obviously love each other, but all you're doing is sleeping, okay? So that could be a consideration to do that. So was it was this your idea? Yeah. And how did you bring up the conversation? Babe, I think we should sleep in separate rooms. <laughs> <laughs> Just as direct as that. I guess it depends. Like if you already have quite an open and honest relationship, then it's easy to just get it out like that. <laughs> well, I think so. I mean, it's a part of being, you know, like, and we've got a whole chapter on connections and relationships in that book as well. Um, and we talk about that, how to have conversations in terms of things that, that might be a little bit hard to bring up. And we, and we do talk about that in the book. But I think it's that whole thing around coming from a place of, of love and compassion, you know, it's kind of like the shit sandwich. You know, you start off with, darling, you know, I love you very much. And then you go, I, I think, you know, it's time that we consider sleeping in separate rooms. I feel like we will sleep better, you know. And he was all for it, right, because I fidget around and we just sleep better separately. And at the end of it, so, you know, make, we've got to make sure we we have intimacy. We're going on a date night every two weeks. We're intimate throughout the week and those kinds of things. So it's having the conversation and also they need to be on board with it. You know, if Jay wasn't on board with it, he's like, no, babe, I, I love you fidgeting and I love, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> if he was like that, which he would never say. <laughs> then I would say, okay, darling, I need to, we need to come to some kind of agreement that's going to work, right? So maybe we sleep together on the weekends where it's not so important with my work. The next day I need to be really focused and on point. So maybe we sleep together on the weekends in the same bed, but during the week I need a few nights just to, to reset and recharge in my own bedroom. Um, so there's ways around it, but you don't know what you don't know in terms of like you've never asked your partner, how do you know? it's good? They might be sitting there going, gosh, I'd love to sleep in a separate room with you. Uh, without you in it so I'd just say bring up bring up the chat you can blame me too just go oh I heard this Chelsea girl on this podcast they sort <laughs> what do you think about that <laughs> just me as your scapegoat I'm totally fine with it and lastly I just wanted I was just hoping that for anyone listening who has gone through or is going through a really tough stage in their life what would be something that you'd like to share with them that might give them a bit of Give them a hope, Paul. Yeah, it's a really beautiful question and thank you for asking me that. And, and being an ambassador for Are You Okay and the Gidget Foundation, it's it's so important, you know, that if you are going through anything out there at the moment, you're, you're suffering, right? That to know that you are not alone on this journey. The bravest thing you can do 
is to reach out and ask for help. Go and speak to your doctor. Okay, speak to someone who loves you, a trusted advisor, right? And go and speak to someone, see a psychologist. Go and speak to your EAP at work if you have that available to you. And the quicker you can get onto these signs and symptoms, the quicker you can recover, right? And if you if there's someone out there that's listening going, Chels, I think my partner might be going through something. Have a look at the resources on Are You Okay and Beyond Blue or if they're if you're a new parent, go to the Gidget Foundation and just get very educated and empowered around what to look out for and then how to have that conversation with your loved one. Because the one thing that they need to know is that they are loved and that they are supported. Don't worry about being an expert, right? You don't need to be the expert to ask the question. Like when Jay asked me, darling, are you okay? Like, I'm, I'm really worried about you. Those three, three words, are you okay? Literally saved my life. And, and that's why I am such a proud ambassador for are you okay? Because it, it starts a conversation. And so I think the biggest thing just to know is that you're not alone. The bravest thing you can do is to reach out and ask for help from the professionals, right? A good doctor, a good psychologist, a good psychiatrist, if you need medication, and have a really great team around you. Okay. So we are right here. All right. At EQ Minds supporting your mental health journey too. You're not alone through this. Come and join our community. It's a very supportive one when it comes to people's mental health. Well, thank you so much, Chelsea. That's a beautiful way to end our chat. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Do you see what I meant in the intro now about Chelsea? This truly was one of those conversations that will have an impact on me for such a long time. This episode of Uninterrupted was hosted and produced by me, Lisa Gebilagan, with additional sound editing by Abby Williams. For more from us, pick up a copy of the latest issue of Women's Health with Rachel Finch on the cover. You can find it on newsstands or online via Zinio and Apple News Plus. And visit us at womenshealth.com.au. See you next time. If you're struggling or having suicidal thoughts or worried about someone you know, please call 000 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you're someone you know needs support for postpartum depression, visit panda.org.au.